This podcast is sponsored by our good friends who have become patrons via the Patreon crowdfunding site. If you'd like to join them, helping us produce more podcasts, films, and other shows, please go to patreon.com slash theprehistoryguys to find out more. And just another note before we start, we weren't able to record Mike Allen in perfect circumstances, and you may be aware from time to time of the sound of typing going on in the background. But it might help you to know that that is the sound of the proceedings of the Prehistoric Society being edited by Mike's wife, Dr Julie Gardner. I'm Michael Bott. And I'm Rupert Soskin. Welcome to the Prehistory Guys podcast. You know, I think today's interview will really be an eye-opener for a lot of our listeners. Oh, I think so too. I'm actually slightly embarrassed that before meeting our guest last year, I'm not sure I had ever actually heard of geoarchaeology as a specific discipline. No, and I don't really understand why it isn't talked about a lot more widely when you consider quite how much information can be gleaned from this side of archaeology. It really is exciting to be able to introduce our listeners to Dr Mike Allen, a man who's been integral to so many important excavations, beavering away in the background while other people got all the press coverage. Isn't that the truth? In reality, the ramifications of Mike's work, particularly of the chalk grasslands, are quite staggering. Yeah, yeah, we're certainly going to be asking him a lot about that. Uh, um, so, look, I'm just going to give you a flavour of Mike's CV. He is one of the country's leading geoarchaeologists and environmental archaeologists with a demonstrated history of working in both the commercial sector and academia. As former environmental manager at Wessex Archaeology, he set up their environmental department and since 2007, operating as Allen Environmental Archaeology, has successfully worked on commercial and research projects at Stonehenge, Avebury, Malta and across southern England. He is Executive Council Member of the Prehistoric Society, Member of the Editorial Boards for the Proceedings of the Prehistoric Society and Series Editor of the Prehistoric Society Research Papers. He has published more than a dozen books, including the textbook Mollusks in Archaeology, Series Editor for Oxbow Books, Studying Scientific Archaeology and their Insights Series. Mike's PhD focused in environmental archaeology from the University of Southampton. He is Vice President of the Conchological Society of Great Britain and Ireland, and in a nutshell, Mike's expertise is in unravelling prehistoric environments and human impact through such things as soils, sediments and snails. <laughs> <laughs> well done. I have to say, it was one of my highlights of 2019, having dinner in a Bournemouth restaurant, sitting opposite Mike, sharing photographs of slugs and snails off our mobile phones. Do you know, I have to confess, it was the first time I had ever witnessed two men sharing photographs of slugs and snails on their mobile phones. <laughs> True. And it really is astonishing <laughs> quite how far-reaching this man's work can be. So shall we get him in? Indeed we shall. Dr Mike Allen, welcome and thank you so much for joining us on the Prehistory Guys podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. It's great to have you here. Yes. Uh, so many questions, though. We, you know, it, it's been a, a, a quite a fun thing figuring out how we were going to start this one off. But we, we always have to begin with... What was it that actually brought you to archaeology yeah. in the first Rumor place? Rumour has it you started early, Mike. 
Yeah, I did all the classic things of going through all the dinosaurs and that type of stuff. And then um, my parents were interested. We always used to go and visit archaeological sites. My mother went to adult evening classes and two things happened. One shows how old I am. Tutankhamun came to London. Oh, so we saw that. I remember that so I well. That as a 11 year old. And also my mother would go to evening classes. I'd wait till she came home to read her notes, at which point oh. we thought, no, no, no. Um, so I actually went to adult evening classes as a schoolboy and joined the local archaeological society and was excavating on archaeological sites from the age of 11. 11. Um, and that's always what I wanted to do. Yeah. I then did various specialist things, like I became the surveyor for the group surveying their archaeological excavations and so on. And then it just led from there. I have it. I think I, in one of your talks, you mentioned that you were um, overseeing digs before you went to university even. Yeah, I I went on a number of excavations, amateur and professional. Um, um, one excavation, which was a PhD undergrad, a PhD student's research, I was his surveyor. Yeah. Um, and that was of a dry valley where they excavated just sediments in the bottom of the valley. And I thought it was mad and boring. And why would you want to do that? <laughs> and the next thing I knew, I was directing the largest dry valley excavation in Britain in the middle of Eastbourne with 93 people while I should have been doing my A-levels. When I mean, <laughs> when I mean while I should have been doing my A-levels, I mean that literally because it was during my A-level year and I realised on the Thursday morning that I should have been not on site but sitting my A-level biology. <laughs> so I went home on the train, ran into school, was caught by the scruff of the neck and taken to a room to sit down and sit that exam um, on, by myself on my own on, a, on the, that afternoon. So my archaeology and education were uh, quite heavily entwined. That is uh, a fantastic anecdote. <laughs> And, it is. I, I, I finished that excavation. Um, literally within weeks of finishing that, I got my place to go to the Institute of Archaeology. Where yeah, I, yeah, yeah. Uh, do, do you think, I mean, being elevated early into a, what is a position of responsibility gives anyone that, you know, is entering a field a completely different perspective of, of uh, you know, how they're going to be and, and what their trajectory is, may be uh, in, in the field? No, I thought it was normal. <laughs> I think so. Um, and I thought it was normal because just down the road from me, I was a late starter. Uh, there was a young boy who I met in 1973 when I was 12, and I asked him, I said, please, sir, can I come and dig with you? And he said yes. So the following year, I dug with him at Bishopstone. That young man then went on to do the PhD on the Dry Valleys yeah. and then worked for English Heritage, and then worked for Reading University, where he set up and is now the professor of geoarchaeology um, at Reading University, Professor Martin Bell. Ah, and right. so he had started directing his own excavations at a younger age than I did. And so I just thought it was the norm. And in Sussex, we were very lucky where I used to live that there was lots of amateur excavations, lots of amateurs doing things at a professional level. Yeah, and yeah. Both amateur and professional were very much intermingled. So... I didn't see what I was doing as anything extraordinary. Well, <laughs> we've just interviewed somebody else who found themselves in themselves in a position of responsibility at an early age, and that's Tim Darville. So, so, uh, so he's my professor at Bournemouth. Yes. I, yeah, so I know Tim very well. In fact, uh, in my lab, um, I have got samples from his latest excavations, which hopefully in the summer we'll be back to tickling a long barrow in the Cotswolds. 
yes. Indeed. I hope to see you there, yeah. hopefully. Yeah. Oh, good. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's an interesting one because uh, when we were talking with Tim, actually not in the interview, it was just we were just chin wagging generally, and and Tim was talking about the fact that there is this move now towards being more focused on the substrate, on the matrix, uh, mm. on all the stuff that historically archaeologists were throwing away, and obviously that's exactly what you do. Yeah, and uh, could you give us? Um, examples of the distinctions between, because your your disciplines, for example, geoarchaeology, environmental archaeology, conchology, uh, could you give our listeners a, uh, a an idea of what each of those disciplines, how would you use each of those disciplines? Okay. Well, environmental archaeology and geoarchaeology as a whole, if we start off with that, is really, I see... Uh, painting a picture and then I'll show you how we paint those component parts. My archaeological colleagues look at the artifacts and the post tiles and the ditches and create a house and a ring ditch around it and they put inside there a half and they put inside there perhaps some flint which someone's napping um, uh, and they might create a little farmstead. Mm. And then if you stand mm. back from that the environmental archaeologists and geoarchaeologists just paints the picture of the rest of the landscape. So mm. I see myself as a landscape painter and the archaeologists do the little bits and we do the big bits. Mm. And we do that by looking at a whole range of different things. And so I look at uh, soil, sediment, snails and shit, really. <laughs> um, and essentially we look at all those things to see what people are doing in the landscape and how they're living. Most people were farmers and they're living off the landscape. So we start off by saying, what did that landscape look like? Well, one thing we can do is just look at the stuff underneath our feet, the soils. Different soils and different landscapes can support different vegetation. So a woodland soil is nice and thick and a ploughed soil is nice and thin. So by looking at soils preserved under barrows or henge monuments or ditches, in, uh, sorry, banks and things, we can start getting a glimpse of what that landscape would look like. What was its vegetation capacity? Also, if we look at that through soil micromorphology, thin sections of the soil, just like you look at pottery thin sections, you can do the same for soils. And we can decide whether that soil has been uh, disrupted by clearance, disrupted by ploughing, mm -hmm. disrupted by tillage. And arding and ploughing are two very different things. We must never confuse them, and I'll come back to that later. And we can see whether that soil has been trampled, whether it's, been, whether it's had animals on it, whether it's had um, sheep weeing on it or yeah. cattle weeing on it. Yeah. And so start creating a pitch from that. The other thing we'll do is then, so what was the vegetation like? Well, I work on the chalklands and people say, oh, yes, look at pollen. Pollen's a really good thing to do. But pollen doesn't survive on the chalk. So we have to use something else. So we use snail shells, bizarrely. Now, the snails you see in your garden are, you know, they're about this big, the big ones, they're yeah. roaming around. They're the Roman snails. For, for listeners, that's like an, an inch in diameter. <laughs> yeah. So they're, they're the two big snails which were brought over by the Romans to eat, one of which is the edible one, and the other one is a common garden snail, which is also eaten. So if you go to France yeah. and you have snails, and if it says Petit Gris, that's your common garden snail. Okay. If it says Burgundian snail, it's the edible one. But um, although those are the two biggest ones, there are 116 other species many of which are microscopic. When I mean microscopic, I do actually have one. 
in here and you can't see it because he's too small. <laughs> he, this is an entire shell uh, of a snail and he's a millimetre and a half in size and a couple of thousand years old. Yeah. Why are we interested in those? Because they live in different habitats. Some live in woodland, some live in open woodland, some live in closed woodland, some live in woodland with leaf litter, some live in woodland with grasslands, some live in shrubland, some in long grass and some in short grass. And the difference between that is if you've got long grass, it's ungrazed. If it's short grass, it's being grazed. Mm. And the reason we can tell the difference is because they like different habitats and different moisture contents. Mm. And then some are like broken ground, which is arable land and so forth. So we can see that. And the difference between long grass and short grass, you can demonstrate yourself. You walk up onto the, into the countryside with a, with a friend of yours and you both decide to sit down to, to relax together. Um, if you sit in long grass, you'll suddenly realise you've got a rear derriere. Whereas if you sit on short grass, you're perfectly fine. And the snails can tell that because those are two very different environments. Mm. So by looking not at one snail, but the whole community of snails, we can work out what the vegetation character was. Yeah. And therefore what the land use was. If we then look at that in more detail through time, so if we have a ditch sequence, there's a Bronze Age ditch, it's still filling up today, which means it's got 4,000 years of sediment history. So that means we have 4,000 years of land use history. So by taking snail samples from the bottom of the ditch and all the way through it, we can get a picture of how that landscape and land use has changed. Mm -hmm. um, and therefore we can cite the monument we're looking at into that landscape, but also see how that monument was revered, whether it was maintained, and look at the landscape in which it sat for hundreds or thousands of years. So it's, um, it, it's you're not just um, painting a picture of the landscape, but you're helping to put people into that landscape as well. Yeah. 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 A, a very good example of that is we looked at a Bronze Age barrow, which had been excavated by some amateurs, and samples from the bottom of the ditch came, had fallen in from the soil. So that tells us what the environment was like before the ditch was dug. And it was short grass. And mm. So we knew that the Bronze Age barrow was built in short long established grassland mm. so the landscape wasn't cleared and maintained for it mm. now chalkland barrows are believed to be nice white chalk mounds gleaming across the top of the downs to be seen for miles across and they would have been revered um across the countryside and maintained well that's cobblers because <laughs> in this case within months of it, of it being built it was left and it grew over with shrubs and nettles and vegetation so it was not revered amazing the act of it was the construction of the barrow the funerary practice that happened beneath it so there's activity of feasting and of drinking and creation of things then the barrow was sealed that was the wake that was the activity they're interested in then they went away oh, yeah but it was then re-cleared re-cleared and grazed grassland um, because people came along and said, oh, yes, this is the burial of our great-grandparents or, or of our ancestors. We'll come and bury Uncle Joe and Auntie Flo in here. So they cremated them and put two cremations in the barrow. So they recreated it, uh, re reinvigorated it, made it nice short grass and had it as a new monument, put their relatives in it and went away. And once again, it was then grown over the vegetation until the Roman period where it's ploughed by green. Mm. 
this is really amazing stuff, Mike, you know, because... Well, I mean, it's just the snails. Yeah, well, exactly. But, I mean, you're accelerating very quickly, you know, to the, the broader question about how the whole of the landscape uh, looked in, in prehistory, particularly on the, the chalk uh, downlands. And, um, well, without um, uh, plot spoiling too much, it looks as if you've overturned uh, a long-held belief that the whole of the British Isles and Europe, for that matter, were covered in um, in forest and oak after the last uh, ice age, and uh, that's what uh, Neolithic and Mesolithic man, to a certain extent, were having to deal with. Yeah, I'm just getting my undergraduate textbook off the shelf here, <laughs> just in uh, case. Undergraduate textbooks, yeah, um, which I was brought up on and is my, was my mentor. Um, this is uh, John Evans's book, The Environment of Early Man and British Charles, and there's other comparable books which show that after the last glaciation, all of Northwest Europe um, developed various stages of vegetation increase and woodland, and were covered in a blanket of woodland. Um, and that woodland changed, and then eventually um, it was cleared locally for long barrows and then caused enclosures, yeah, yeah. and that clearance got bigger and bigger as the herds got larger and then into farming, and eventually we created the downlands we see today. Can I give you a moment, Mike, to yeah. say a word or two about uh, John Evans, because I know yeah. he was your, your mentor and you held him in very, very high esteem, as I did, did. M- many other people. But, you know, it, it was, it's an interesting thing when you're, you're essentially, you, you, the, the work you do over the years, you gradually find out, well, actually what I was taught by my mentor was not quite so. What, what, what's, what's so true is that the, the environment of Northwest Europe was always built up like that. And John Evans had this idea, said, but we can't tell that for the Chalklands. The Chalklands were different. Let's look at the Chalklands. And that's why the snails came into play, because that's the question he wanted to address. Mm. And then he wrote this book, Land, Snails and Archaeology. Here's my original copy, battered wow. and things. Yes, um, yes. 1972, my Bible. Um, <laughs> and uh, he looked at various really important sites in the, the Chalk Downlands, Avebury and some major sites, and got hints of woodlands there and woodland species and suggested that the downlands were covered with woodlands just like everywhere else. Mm. So we knew then that the picture for Northwest Europe wasn't, the downlands weren't excluded from that. And so that was the basis that I was taught. That was in 1972. I was taught that at evening classes not long after that. And my other mentor, Professor Martin Bell, I worked with him in the field and he told me about that. And so that was the gospel. And my undergraduate dissertation and my PhD considered that to be the gospel. And understanding that and accepting that as fact delayed my interpretation of or reinterpretation of some areas of the chalk downlands for 30 years. Because wow. I just believed the textbooks um, and I found areas where I couldn't find woodland through the snails, some early Neolithic sites in various places, Dorchester, where I'd done a lot of work, subsequently um, uh, Stonehenge area, and then eventually Cranbourne Chase. And I kept finding these open areas of non-wooden sites. Oh, well, perhaps it's because uh, I'm looking onto an archaeological site, and after the wooden was cleared for the archaeological site, and all the evidence has been eradicated. Um, or perhaps there were other reasons why that had been the case. And then I suddenly realised that 
if you joined all these dots together and it was happening so consistently, some areas were not wooded. And I suggested that originally in my thesis in 1997, and my uh, internal supervisor said, you can't say that. That's just isn't fact. You've got to tone that down. You can just make it as a supposition. Ironically, I produced my thesis in 1997. At the same time, somebody else was producing a thesis in Holland, someone called Vera, Franz Vera, where he was suggesting that there are areas of natural woodland, if you get animals into them, you'll get woodland dieback, large grazers and browsers will come in and start nibbling the grass and stopping the vegetation growing, so you will then get areas which will be open and maintained as open from the earliest periods. Our two pieces of work are completely independent, and yet they were symbiotic and very similar. Mm. Subsequently, Mm. I now realise that not all of the downlands were wooded. And if you look at any natural landscape, it's always a mosaic. Go and have a look at the lawn in your garden. It's grass. Now crawl on your hands and knees and have a look at it. And there's lots of different species of grass there. If you plot them out, it's like a a carpet, a patchy mosaic of different things. So if you went up in an aeroplane or up in a space shuttle and looked down at Earth, you would see that even these huge areas of woodlands covering much of the former Soviet Union, which seem to be a blanket of woodland, are in fact patchy. And within that, there are natural openings. And those openings can be as big as an English parish. But on genre, that is considered to be woodland. But in specific, if you're in any one of those locations, it's big enough to put a village. Mm -hmm. And that's the point. So if we look at where I'm starting to find the openings, I... Initially, we're seeing it in Dorchester, yeah. which I hadn't realised, um, and then Stonehenge. But the work with Professor Charlie French from Cambridge University at Down Farm and Cranbourne Chase, yeah. following on the work from Martin, uh, from Martin Green and Richard Bradley, where Richard, they wrote a fantastic book, and I just scribbled in my copy when Richard wrote about um, the environment. Actually, I wrote in the margin rather rudely, I think I'd put an ink arrow to it and put the word bollocks next to it. (laughs) Um, Unfortunately, when Richard came to stay, so we were talking about Cranbourne Chase and I'd been there because Martin Green had done some more work there. And he said, oh, I'll show you in my book. And he noticed this. And his comment was, well, if you think it's rubbish, do something about it. Uh And that's what we did with our research project with Charlie French. And what we did in there is we looked at both the land snails but even more importantly, the soils that Charlie looked at. And then we realised it was open. It had never been wooded. And it was a very large open landscape. Mm -hmm. And that means if it's open, it doesn't mean it's treeless. It means there is trees, because obviously they need that for fire and for building. But it's more open, which means that fruits and berries will grow, Mm -hmm. which will encourage animals. Which means you've then got fruits and berries to eat, hazelnuts. Hazel is a shrub, not a tree. And therefore that will flower and fruit and therefore more animals will come in. And therefore, if you come in as an early human population, say in the Mesolithic, you've got your meat and two veg mm. sitting in that landscape. Mm. And therefore, it's no surprise that the Cranbourne Chase area has got the densest scatter of Mesolithic flints anywhere on the Chalklands um, of southern Britain. Oh, OK. Makes and because the area was created, was an ideal place to occupy. Yes. And latterly, not only was it there for a, a, a centre of Mesolithic activity, it then became a centre of Neolithic activity and monumental activity. Uh, so there are huge right. monuments, gotcha. henges, yeah. um, the Dorset Cursus, 
yeah. and a whole range of things, and they all clustered around that area. So we find that in Cranbourne Chase. But then if we go to Dorchester, which in 15 years before I was postulating in 1997 was open and never wooded, but that is an area which has also got full of henge monuments, Mornbury yeah. Rings, Mount yeah. Pleasant, Maiden Castle as its Neolithic components rather than its modern Iron Age bits. Mm. Um, and so that was another open area. So if we then progress our way through other major centres of, of Wessex, Stonehenge. Ah, yes, Stonehenge. That is the same. Yeah. John Evans sort of knew because underneath the, very, the, the, the soil, underneath the bank there, it's got a very thin soil, an open grass and soil. And the snails I looked at from there show that. And we know that was another open landscape. Yeah. Um, and the work, landscape we're working on currently at the moment um, is Avebury, where we're looking to look, look at hillwash and buried soils. So we all sort of pretty much know what a, a forest looks like or what you know an oak forest looks like. If we wanted to go somewhere in the British Isles to illustrate um, what's closest to an open woodland that... I, I would actually beg to differ. I said I don't think we do know what a woodland looks like. And I think one of our biggest problems is that we use this term woodland yeah. with gay abandon. <laughs> and if you look at any ecologist, they go, well, what type of woodland do you mean? Yeah. Do you mean deciduous woodland? Do you mean closed woodland? Do yeah. you mean open woodland? Do yeah. you mean mixed woodland? Do you mean uh, woodland pasture and so forth? And you suddenly realise that our ecological friends are much more nuanced and we as archaeologists are rather poor. We just go trees. <laughs> but it's much more yeah. complex than that and if it's a dense woodland like the woodland uh, like the dark woodland that the hobbit went through for instance yeah. um, that's fine and some of that did exist much of that does not exist in britain anymore oh. but we knew we must have known for years that can't have existed because we had oryx prancing around the landscape yeah, yeah. and oryx has got a, a horn span of, of <laughs> meters so how can it go through a closed, dense forest unless it's shimming its way sideways through the woodland? And it yeah. can't have done that. It must have been more open. And, of course, mm. cows are actually browsers, not grazers. Yeah. So they need to get into the woodland to eat leaves, and that helps keep it open and keep the understory up, um, and they get through. And then the young, the other grazers take out the, the ground vegetation, so it means that things are more accessible, so people can get in. Mm. So... Um, that type of woodland is more like our park woodland. Yeah, yeah. So you're you're gleaning all this, or not all of this, but a great deal of this from the microscopic snails that yeah. you're pulling up from excavations. One thing I want to know is how long does it take you? How arduous is it? Because so many of these microscopic snails, okay, there are species that are very different, but you know, if you look at a columella next to a vertigo, they look yeah. almost the same. How how long does it take you to actually distinguish how many species you might have? I remember when we were reading the excavation reports from the Devil's Quoits in Oxfordshire, that there were like there were over twenty species of snail that they uh, dug up from those ditch cuttings. Yeah. So, how much time does it take you before you even can begin to put the landscape together in your mind? Um, it takes a day to take the samples in the field. It will then take several weeks just to play mud pies and sieve them out. <laughs> and then it will take um, days, weeks and months to extract and identify them. 
mm. and then analyze them. And what I stupidly do is find that one site ain't enough, folks. <laughs> Devil's, Point. Devil's Point is a fantastic piece of work. Yeah. And any one site I've done is quite interesting. because That tells you about one dot on the landscape. Mm-hmm. Unlike the pollen, which represents a large area of the landscape, the snails don't go very far. They can move through a couple hundred metres a day and they will migrate 50 metres into woodland and outer woodland during one day, but they don't represent a very large area. So to understand a landscape, you need to be stupid and look at a large number of sites in the same landscape. So you end up spending years strapped and shackled to a microscope. And I have been known to be there at six o'clock in the morning to 11 o'clock at night, six days a week. Um, But yes, it is expensive. It does take a long time. And then you can build up uh, ideas of what's going on or hypotheses or landscape pictures. And I now try and paint, actually create maps of vegetation and land use. Um, and it's quite dangerous because you can be proved wrong very easily with every new piece of evidence. Mm-hmm. But that's fantastic. That's great because that means every new piece of evidence, you can rub a bit out and tinker with something and get something which is better and more nuanced. Mm-hmm. But it does take months and months and months. And therefore, you need to interrogate your archaeologists, ask your archaeologists a number of questions to work out how valuable is it going to be? Mm. And in some cases, to look at a Bronze Age barrow now, I know that on the whole, they're going to be built in open grassland. So my main question is, one, was that grassland created for the barrow or was it in a pre-existing landscape? Mm-hmm. And then my next question is, was the barrow revered for a long period of time or what did it? was it abandoned and grow with vegetation? Mm. And those are the two specific questions I may now be asking, whereas before... I'd rather naively be wanting to look at a whole detailed land use history. Yeah, yeah. Also, in the Dorchester area, we can start seeing that the, the soils were always thin there because there was no woodland, but it does look like the, the barrows were built on areas of denuded soil, which had been ploughed before, and therefore perhaps they'd been ploughed to an extent where there'd been erosion, soils had eroded from the hilltops down into the valleys. We've got metres of hill wash in the valleys, which means the soils on the hilltops were thinner, and under current agriculture, you can till them. But under prehistoric agriculture, they may no longer have been viable. They may not have been economically viable. And so you put those to pasture or you put those to the, you give them over to the dead. So you're not using dead land for your dead people. Oh, right. amazing. That, that the is... barrows may be explicitly put into land which is economically less valuable. Otherwise, you'd be using really good pieces of land and wasting them. Oh, that, paint, that paints a different picture, doesn't it? Doesn't it? Completely. It's astonishing how, you know, these are things that you you would never learn from artefacts. No. Would you? Um, so it is it's just remarkable, actually. Oh, that's just bling. Dating it's <laughs> bling. This is the deal. <laughs> Mike, how, how much, I, I mean, Rupert and I have been pursuing this, you know, we, we made a film 10, 12 year, years ago. And our focus was very much on the big stuff stuff in the landscape. The film was called Standing with Stones, you know, so that. So in this two years since we um, started the podcast, we've been in a, you know, a lot of catch up. And so we may be a little bit behind the curve on a lot of things. But (laughs) to what extent um, is your kind of work sort of um, being a driver for more of a connection between the bling and the landscape and how much have archaeologists been a demand 
for more connection with the uh, landscape, or is there a nice heady balance between the two? There's, there's, it's interesting because archaeologists are looking more and more at landscape, but what they see as landscape is not what I see as landscape. Ah. They see as landscape as a map on which there are dots on it, which may be monuments and find spots, which they can look at and look at sites clustered, distributed, spaced, in and between, or which they can travel across, through and between, through pathways and avenues. Okay. And they might look at distributions of artefacts, showing a distributions of activity versus distributions of monuments. Mm. But I see the landscape really as the, the countryside, the farmscape. So I'm not up there in my aeroplane. I'm down on the ground looking at what's happening and seeing what the farmers are doing, what people are doing, because they're living off that landscape. And so I'm painting that picture, which is a part of the distribution of the artefacts and of the monuments, but it's a distribution of the land use, of the farms, of the woodland, of the farmscape, and so forth, to enable us to put it all together to paint that picture. Yeah. Yeah. Have you, from the work that you've done, particularly in Henges, uh, uh, one of the surprises for us, again, at the Devil's Quoits, because that excavation was quite astonishing, that one of the things that was a surprise to us was that the the, um, the mollusks showed that the ditch had never been kept clean and tidy at all. You know, right from the very beginning, it was uh, you know it was overgrown and full of different grasses. So, has have those sorts of discoveries that you that you make in the course of your work have they led you to interpretations that might conflict with uh, convention yeah very, very much so um, two points one i think the landscape reconstructions we see look very clean and very tidy the landscape isn't and never was very clean and very tidy mm -hmm. nor was the sites um, and one of the best examples is in fact stonehenge where john evans went through and did a detailed analysis of that and showed that the ditch was dug and then he suggested it had been grown over and he thought this was a element of regeneration and abandonment and linked it to the secondary Neolithic and to human population movements and to um, uh, quite big interpretations by Humphrey Case at that time. I've gone back and ha had a look at that and now with more nuanced analysis and with understanding a bit more about it, I don't think it is vegetationally growing in terms of woodland. Mm -hmm. I think that all that's happening is the ditch has got is growing with grass. They are not cleaning out the ditch. The ditch itself has got long, rank grass in it because yeah. you can't be bothered to go into the ditch and, and clear it out. None of your sheep are necessarily going to go into the ditch and clear it out. In fact, you want to prevent them from doing that because they're going to bugger it up. Yeah. So um, that long grass is actually telling us more about the state of the monument, how they revered the monument. It's not meaning that the stones themselves are any less important. It just means the ditch, which is gathering dust, gathering rubbish, gathering long grasses, is just doing its function by creating the barrier, but it doesn't have to be immaculate and mowed as it is today by English heritage. Yeah. Uh, not to say that that is wrong today, but if you go to any ditch or any gully, you'll find today it's full of leaves, full of beer cans, full of the odd bits and stuff, and this long grass is just doing exactly the same um, for Stonehenge at 2950 BC, yeah. as your roadside ditch is doing today. Does what you, you're finding, um, 
feed into um, something more along the lines that I think about, and that is not of continuous use, but of a uh, to rob a, a phrase from elsewhere from uh, uh, from evolution of punctuated equilibrium, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. where things are. Somebody has a bright idea, things get done quickly, and then actually they fall out of use quite quickly, the original use quite quickly, and then later on, because there's such a mark in the landscape, something else happens there or something else happens there, rather than this idea of continuous uh, uniform use. And, and until recently, we had all this Bayesian statistics and much better dating. Archaeologists were very naive in terms of chronology and dating. So I'd visited a number of sites, and in Dorchester we did that on a number of sites, where we said, oh, yes, yeah, so I've got Neolithic activity here, early Neolithic activity, and I've got Middle Neolithic activity, and I've got Bronze Age activity, and I've got Iron Age activity, and I've got Roman activity, and I've got Saxon activity. So I can go Neolithic, tick, Bronze Age, tick, Iron Age, tick, Roman, tick, Saxon, tick. Therefore, I have a continuously occupied site. Um, <laughs> and the yeah. snails can do just that they can show well you may think it's continuously occupied because you've been able to tick those rather crude boxes yeah. but actually in reality those are episodes of activity and the site is a focus of that activity being reused and reused and reused because it's in the right place because it's created a mark on the landscape because it has some inertia but it doesn't mean you're there all the time. And we're seeing that more and more. And so if we only have to look at other big monuments in today's landscape, whether it be a Wembley Stadium or a Salisbury Cathedral, that they're still there. Yeah. But in between major episodes of building or major episodes of activity, it goes through phases of much lower activity. Yeah. And that's where the weeds and things will grow up. So, yeah. you know, I'm not saying they're growing up in those locations, but means that the phases of activity are designed when it's built and they've changed over time. Yeah. And there are periods when there are lots of activity and major emphasis and phases when there is less activity or no activity. Mm. Uh, and so I don't see that as any different. And it's actually more of the norm for, for society all yeah. around the world. Yeah. Yes, yes, absolutely. Well, y your work has, uh, has been going through lots of... Uh, Varieties at the moment. Tell us a little bit about your work on shafts. Um, there was the fir tree field shaft you did some work on, wasn't there? Because we um, uh, well, we were recently looking into not literally the Wilsford shaft uh, right. yeah. <laughs> near Stonehenge, okay. yeah. and uh, it's uh, it's a remarkable feat of Neolithic engineering, apart from anything else, to have created some of those ridiculously deep shafts. Yeah. Uh, is what have your excavations told you about those structures? Well, I think we can divide them into two. The, the fir tree field shaft is astonishing. It's astonishing that Martin Green ever dug it in the first place because it is 12 and a half metres deep and a very large hole. And he only stopped, and his wife will thank me for this, when I went <laughs> and augured it, we climbed down the ladder to the bottom, 11 metres below the surface, and I augured it with my augers, and as the augers went right the way, I ran out of auger rods. We were 12 or 13 metres of auger rods down, so we were as far to go as we had already gone, and we hadn't wow. hit the bottom. And at that point, we realised that it wasn't a man-made shaft. It wasn't a, a flint mine. It was a natural hole. It didn't stop it from being fascinating, and it had always been fascinating to people in prehistory, just as it is to us today, yeah. because it had... Um, been an area 
which people have noticed as a natural sinkhole, a natural dopamine. Animals, animals had, had walked across the landscape and fallen into the hole and died. Domestic people had visited it, and in the latter phases, we have this really, really good sequence of deposits in there, giving a really good picture of the environment. Yes. Uh, but the other shafts are indeed Wilsford shaft and the shaft at Bell Toot, which I was involved with both to a certain extent. Martin Bell looks at the environment at the Wilsford shaft, and it's a beautiful shaft. It's perfectly circular um, in diameter um, all the way down, um, and then at about 100 foot, it narrows. Um, the, the archaeologists felt that it narrowed because they'd re reached the water table and couldn't dig it any deeper, so yeah. they narrowed it. Uh, Martin Bell, and I agree with him, suggests that they it narrows when it hit the water table because that's what it was designed for. Yeah. 100 foot deep, designed through the chalk, cut perfectly circularly down to there to reach the water table. And it suggested that it was dug by having a wooden template which you put into the shaft, you dug the soil and the chalk from underneath it and slowly lowered it down. So that template went down and yeah. you removed it. It's a huge undertaking in the, the Bronze Age, earlier Bronze Age, or if you believe Tim Darvel, then Neolithic, because there is a Neolithic date at the bottom. I think that's residual. Sorry, Tim. Um, <laughs> I think it's a Bronze Age lands, a Bronze Age well to water the amazing downland, which was full of animals. Just because we're farming doesn't mean we're tilling it and ploughing it. It's animals, sheep and cattle. Um, and we need to water them, and that's a way of doing it. Yeah. That's fine. We have another one, which is sat on the cliff at Beachy Head at Bell Toot for years. And we've, we've been re-examining that very recently. Um, that's been known as for, for a long time. At one point, there are photographs historically of people standing next to a large dip near mm -hmm. the cliff edge. Um, and then it, it fell off the cliff. It was thought to be um, a marling pit or a, a, a pit of that kind. And if you look at Richard Bradley's original publications, he calls it a, a quarry or something. Mm. But during Richard's excavations at Beltoot or not long after, the cliff fell um, and it exposed this shaft in sections. You had this beautiful archaeological section of the cliff with this shaft 100 foot oh, per sided yeah. in sections. It's a fantastic photograph. An archaeologist went to see it, I went to see it, Martin Bell went to see it, Richard Bradley went to see it. All the archaeologists in the world in the area went to see it in Sussex. Um, and they admired it, they took photographs of it. Uh, there were a couple of short notices published in the local archaeological collections about it. Um, and archaeologists did nothing about it. We as a profession were appalling in that we looked at it and fascinated about it, but no one did anything about it. There was an opportunity, both a hundred foot of, of sediment to, to sample and have a look uh, at, and uh. B, the bottom of it was still on the beach. <laughs> Only two people actually did anything about it, one of whom was a late great amateur archaeologist in Eastbourne, Arthur Sayers, who got on the bus from Eastbourne, went over to uh, Beltsuit, and excavated it in his own time and took out a couple of buckets of sludge. He found it was wet and gloopy and very smelly. And he took out a couple of buckets of sludge, which he left in his kitchen for years. Yeah. Um, the other person, I, I then stumbled across those buckets because when I was digging my site in Eastbourne, um, I stayed with him 
I had to remove, I was given the spare room, and I had to remove some <laughs> old clothes, which were sitting in the bottom of the bed, which had been there for years. He said, oh, uh, yes, I, the previous archaeologist stayed here. I said, oh, this is 1980. I said, oh, who's, he said, oh, that was Richard Bradley when he was digging Bell Toot in the 1960s and early 70s. <laughs> I removed some of his old clothes and he, he left. And, and, and I slept in that room. But I also saw these buckets of gloop and he gave me chunks of it, some bits of wood and some bits of sediment, which I kept and didn't know what to do with until relatively recently. Um, the, other th- the only other thing that anyone... The two other things that were done to the shaft is one, the coast guards went down over the cliff edge and looked at it and brought out some soil. And in there, they sifted, they found a piece of Middle Bronze Age pottery, which Owen Bedwin, the archaeologist at the time, did publish. And that's the way. The only other thing that happened was that um, there was a a group of uh, undergraduate students on a field trip there being led by. Peter Druitt, Professor Peter Druitt, and they're all bumbling around. And while Peter went away to have a look at something, one of the students decided, who was apparently absolutely terrified of heights, that nevertheless, they would like to go over the edge of the cliff. So they persuaded some colleagues to tie a rope around his waist and tie the, the rope to the end of the Land Rover, reverse the Land Rover, and go over the cliff where they could collect some samples. They did that. Um, I did that um, and came back with six or seven samples um, and the Land Rover just then drove forward and I was pulled back up the cliff. It was incredibly stupid and as I was told later... What could possibly have gone wrong, Mike? What was worse is as I was holding all the samples, obviously I had eight samples of about a kilogram of sugar baggage, which I was clutching to my breast, holding really tight... This made me completely unbalanced. And had I flipped 180, I would have plummeted to my death and losing all those valuable samples, I hasten to. Oh, yeah. But, but well, we managed God to get you back. Didn't, yeah. I later found the person who was driving the Land Rover hadn't passed their test. Um, <laughs> when Peter Druitt came back and saw me completely covered in thought, he didn't bother asking what had happened. He just ignored it. Anyway, those samples I analysed... Uh, much later and we have a very nice land snout sequence from the upper part of the shaft and then i thought i ought to go back and do what arthur said had done in the 70s and excavate the bottom of the shaft the shaft had collapsed and it no longer sits on the cliff edge uh-huh. so somewhere on the beach underneath the shingle there would be a shaft and if we look at the wilsford shaft the wilsford shaft contained fragments of rope it contained the evidence of 17 buckets with the bases made of oak and the staves made of alder or vice versa Um, so the original interpretation of the Wilson shaft and English heritage were beautiful in allowing the two main authors to put two different interpretations they didn't agree with each other so one interpretation is that it's a ritual shaft and perhaps that the locals were lowering lambs due to the gods of the underworld the lambs in the bottom is a bit difficult to be stewed because they are complete skeletified lambs. In other words, they were once tripping across the landscape, <laughs> not knowing where they're going, and plummeted yeah, to their death. Does, yes. uh, the other archaeologist, Martin Bell, suggested that as there were 17 buckets down there, large pieces of rope, evidence from the insects that there was a canopy over the top of it, that perhaps it was a well. Um, the preservation is unprecedented. Mosses, plant remains, artefacts. And so the potential for that in Sussex was very high. Yeah. So I thought that we would go out there and excavate it. We had 
I did it as an adjunct to a natural trust project we were doing. And we arranged for a selected group of people to go out and one, find it. So I sent them out to find it. And so the amateurs went out there week after week looking for it and eventually they discovered it. Now, in fact, I was just coming back from Musk Farm when they sent me a photograph saying, I think this is it. And there indeed was a circular, a circle in the beach um, with a chalk cut hole and pebbles in it. Wow. So I latterly went out and I planned to excavate it. I mentioned it to Martin Bell and he asked his permission to come along. So I said, yes, of course you can come along and help. Um, so we went out there had all this health and safety plan, got out there, started to excavate it, and within 15 or 20 minutes, we'd reached the bottom. So unfortunately, the sea had done all the excavation for us. Uh, Shaft was now 15 metres from the chalk cliff, so it was gone 15 metres since 1982. Wow. back, And not only had it, was it 15 metres away from the cliff, it was obviously now considerably lower so the chalk had been stripped away so yeah. when it was looked at in the early 70s or mid 70s by uh, Arthur Sayers it was over a meter deep perhaps nearly two meters deep it yeah. was now 15 centimeters deep and yeah. there was nothing in the bottom yeah. there was a 303 cartridge um, <laughs> there were some stains on the bottom there are some marks which might be tool marks which are being looked at through impressions and um that were a couple of copper stains. Yeah. What is interesting is those copper stains have been analysed by uh, Dr Chris Carey at Brighton University, and the copper in them is consistent with Bronze Age copper. Right. Okay. Slightly better. Much of the stains in them are consistent with beaker copper. Oh, my goodness. And um, okay. right on the top of the hill, there's the infamous beaker settlement site of Bell Toot which Richard oh. Brad excavated in the okay. 70s and published in 1971. So that opened down and that beaker settlement, this main day, the, the beaker shaft to go with that. And that is then earlier than Wilsford and suggests the opening of that landscape for large flocks of animals at that stage. We are still doing the analysis of that. We have radiocarbon dates from it because I did have the wood and kept the wood and radiocarbon dated that, which was given yeah. to me. So we have some early-ish, mid-Bronze Age dates for that but they're not on the bottom um and so that's again painting a picture of that landscape and yeah. walking the downs there so it the, is just the, lesson... the most astonishing piece of detective work it really yeah. is uh, with lessons learned i hope <laughs> yeah the lesson is if it's there do something about it, <laughs> and <if that's>, it <laughs> the fact is that that no professional archaeologist had at that time the only person had was a first year undergraduate student uh and a local amateur archaeologist yeah. Um, and they had done more work on that than any professional. And I think that as a profession, we failed Beltoot Shaft. The Beltoot Shaft didn't fail us. Yes, mm. amazing. Well, just changing gear, tell us a little bit about your recent work, because we know you've been working on the Cernovus Giant. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> we're, yeah, we're quite excited to hear news about that. If you can tell us anything, that is. Yeah, yeah the, the, the Cernovus Giant is... A huge naked giant on the hillside uh, in Dorset. Um, and for years, no one has known what age he was. Was he prehistoric, as Professor Darvel thinks? Is he Roman? Some people think he might be a 
depiction of Hercules. Some people think he's medieval and others think he's post-medieval. So Professor Ronald Hutton thinks he's post-medieval. Um, their arguments bounded backwards and forwards since Piggott um, in the 30s or 40s. Um, but no archaeologist has really got to grips with it because there's nothing there to date. It's just yeah. a chalk figure. Yeah. Um, perhaps nearly 20 years ago, um, I did have an idea that if we looked at the Sonamus giant and looked for hill wash underneath him, that hill wash would have been engendered by the creation of, of making him on the hillside. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and if, if we looked at that hill wash and excavated it carefully and plotted artifacts, we could date it either through the artifacts or through optical stimulated luminescence and therefore date um, the Sonamus giant. And I was very lucky that there was a television programme at the time that was very keen to do that. So I went out there all gun ho saying, no, this is what we'll do. It's dead simple. There's a huge hill slope there. I spent 25 years looking at hill wash. There's going to be some hill wash down here. So on camera, we went out and there wasn't hill wash here and there wasn't hill wash at the next point and there wasn't hill wash at the next point. And in fact, everywhere I looked, very embarrassingly, there wasn't hill wash. And to this day, I don't quite understand why there isn't any. We went out into the fields beyond and there was no hill wash. So we gave up with that. The television programme said, we'd still like the idea, can we do it somewhere else? And I said, oh, yes, go to the Long Man of Wilmington. Yes. Um, my boss was, at the time was unhappy for me to go and play with that in my own in, in his time. time. <laughs> I'd already spent over a day, two days in his time playing on the Cernavis Giant, but <laughs> no, no result. So I couldn't look at the Long Man of Wilmington. But this chap, Martin Bell, did, and did a very successful job there, and did just that. So... The Long Man of Wilmington was dated, and the Cernabas remained undated. Martin Papworth, the archaeologist of the National Trust, came up with the idea of saying, well, if we look underneath the chalk filling, because they know that today is not just a, sculpt, a, a, a scratch on the chalk, they pound chalk into him, and they've always pounded chalk into him. Uh. If we dug that out and looked at the very earliest one, we could look at an optical-stimulated luminescent date for him and get a TAQ. Now, that's the latest date at which he was constructed and that might start giving us some indications yeah. so that's what we did with permission from uh, historic england um, we looked at four little clinical incisions one into each of the soles of his feet and one into his elbows at points where we could see the sediments clearly building up and where the the packing of the chalk fill had built up gradually over time and they gave us the best opportunity to look at a sequence the base of which we could we could potentially date. So with a team of people from the National Trust and myself and Martin, led by Martin Papa, we dug those four little slots. Um, and they were astonishing because um, each trench had three profiles, an upslope profile, which was very different from the chalk fill, which was very different from the lower slope okay. profile. The chalk fill was um, chalk rubble to start off with, and then there was chalk marl, and then there was another layer of chalk marl, and then there was kibbled chalk, which is uh, water-rolled chalk, which would be imported to do so. Wow. And then there was more chalk miles on top of that and more chalk miles on top of that. So they've been accretionally built up over time. Yeah, yeah. Some of those, the kibbled chalk, we know probably dates to the 1970s. Okay. We know there are large numbers of, of cleanings. So any date we're going to get is only going to give us a date before which he could have occurred. Yeah. How much before that date? We don't know. Oh, yeah. However, our piece de resistance was that the trench cuts some hill wash. 
that's some hill wash and we can date the hill wash we can date our earliest chalk fill yeah. and the hill wash and he has to be between those right so we're well on to the way with that and i am looking at the snails from that sequence as well so our osl dates are now with professor phil toms in Gloucester University, and if he was given permission, he'd be in the lab at this moment doing so. But due to the current situation, yeah, he can't, can't do that. However, I am sitting in my lab, just in the building beside us, and processing the land snails. And land snails are not used as a dating technique; they tell us about the environment. Yeah, yeah. But I did tell you that some snails appear in the Roman period. Mm -hmm. Yes. Well, some snails, which are very, very small and too small to eat do appear in the British fauna in the medieval period okay. because they're probably, when there's lots of transport with France and Europe, lots of goods such as uh, pots and the material that the pots contain are packed onto ships in grass and straw and hay. And amongst that grass and straw and hay may be some live snails which on unpacking escape and have invaded the entire country. And if we find those, we know that deposits are medieval later. Well, the deposits above the hill wash, which are accumulating during the construction of the giant, are medieval or later. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that he is medieval or later, because the absolute classic is going to be what is in the colluvium. Yeah. The colluvium contains those snails. I don't really need our expensive OSL dates, because we could then say he's medieval or later. Our OSL dates will give us definitive numbers on that. Mm. Um, so our main question is, is he prehistoric, is he Roman, is he medieval, or is he post-medieval? Yeah. And the snails might help us remove two of those elements. Yeah, yeah. A week's time, I'll, tell you, I'll be able to tell you that. All right. Um, Watch this space. <laughs> later, later in the summer, you'll actually have the OSL dates. Yeah. But the result of those four very small trenches, only 60 centimetres wide, you wow. understand more about the construction yeah. of the monument, the building of it, it's it's nothing like the long man of wilmington it's much yeah. more like upton white horse which is prehistoric of course yeah, yeah. um so yeah that's very exciting so martin papworth had the idea and has got to be congratulated for that and engineered it and then phil thomas from gloucester is, is hopefully getting those ourselves so it's a combination of archaeology dating methods and the science and putting them all together yeah will get us a new story to uh, to cloak well, it's a perfect example of how you do get a new story of bringing all the, these things uh, yeah. together. Um, so, yeah, great news. And uh, watch this space. We'll <laughs> it's very exciting. Bring you developments really as they exciting. occur. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we should be thinking about uh, drawing our little should, really. yes. chat to, to right. a close. And as with everything, uh, there are so many avenues we could go down so many little details we could pursue with you, you Mike and uh, uh, I'm sure you know we, if possible we'd love to do a, a follow-up where we could po probably um, you know dive down a few of, of those avenues but in the meantime is there anything you feel that we've left out or anything we haven't anything we haven't mined from your <laughs> the, 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 the types of things you you could explore in futures you yeah. come to the lab and we can see some of these things so uh, you could see i was going to say the technical <laughs> processing of the samples which is quite easy but also just have a look at the snails and just see how powerful these beasties are in the right hands mm. um but there are a number of other things that, that we look at um, 
I, I concentrate on the land snails, but yeah. every archaeologist out there, we can look at a whole range of things and, and provide that interpretation of diet, animal husbandry, and what people are eating, what the animals are doing, um, to create that bigger picture for all the archaeologists. And it's a case of, I think that, that environmental archaeologists as a discipline are very, very good. And since the uh, late Professor John Evans and Geoffrey Dimbleby, um, they created a whole new uh, discipline. And we spent a long time creating that discipline and talking to ourselves. We should never be talking to ourselves because we are not there to fulfill our own needs. We are there to fulfill the archaeological needs. So we should be stopping talking to our environmental archaeological colleagues and yeah. should be more talking to our archaeologists yeah. and discussing with them, engaging with our archaeologists. So we should be seeing, and hopefully we are now seeing, more environmental archaeologists in archaeological conferences discussing archaeology and not the minutiae of the snail or the pollen because we should be working together as a team because we are just as a part of the archaeology as the finds people are but we as a discipline need to learn more to talk about the archaeology mm -hmm. rather than the minutiae and, and speak to a specific audience or or broaden the audience out right yeah absolutely yeah, yeah. Well, I think it's remarkable that that even today, people are still being taught uh, about the post-glacial uh, forestation of of Britain. You know that it's it takes quite a while for things yeah. to come out of sure. the sure. Uh, you know the <laughs> the back rooms of academia, if you like, before yeah. it becomes a generally accepted piece of public knowledge. And mm -hmm. so I think you know it is so important that people understand more about the kind of work that you do. It is mm -hmm. just so enlightening. It really is. Yeah, I mean, but, I mean, it's funny. We didn't really set out ourselves to be that person, but we sort of <laughs> fallen into that, uh, yeah. into that yeah. slot very, very happily indeed. Thank you very much yeah. indeed. You know, uh, but, uh, uh, yes, yeah, so if we can uh, be just a, a small part of that... <laughs> Yeah, and, and that so, little cog yeah, in the machinery then yeah so it's quite interesting if we look at sort of england as a whole most of it is woodland but these areas which were open are all the important prehistoric areas yes. so we've I've done it on the chalklands now we should be doing it for other areas yeah. outside the chalklands outside other areas but also looking at areas on the chalklands which weren't like that which did become important so they are having areas cleared huge settlement areas huge neolithic barrow cemeteries and so forth yeah. So why weren't why why were they put there? Mm. So the fact they were put there is perhaps even more important than why people put things in the easier places like Stonehenge and Avery. Yeah. Yeah. And then we should move further north. People have been uh, looking at some of these huge um, sites in Yorkshire. Yeah, yeah. Been the same. So we should be taking that idea out as a germ and spreading it around our other archaeological and environmental colleagues. Fantastic. Yeah. Yes, you've answered a, a question kind of that we were going to answer about the broader picture, but uh, you, you've just uh, n nailed it perfectly. Right. Okay. Well, um, that's been a complete joy and, a, and a, an eye-opener for us, us and I hope uh, an eye-opener mm. for um, our listeners too. So thank you, Mike. Thank you so much. Um, I'm so glad we got you on. You know, it's, uh, it's been something we've been looking forward to since we met you last year. And uh, uh, yes. Come to the lab or come and see me on site because one of the other things that yes. uh, we do on site is the soils talk to us. Yeah. yeah. When we look at a section, we describe the section not in context and colours and textures, but in terms of process and how it got there. And yeah. that's helping us understand the site, not describe the site. Yeah. And that's where. We'll do that. 
Perfect. <laughs> we will do Thank that. Thank you so much, Mike. Yeah. It, it has been a great pleasure. Thank to you, our listeners, much. thanks for listening, and uh, we'll see you again next time. We'll see you next time. Yeah. Cheers, folks. Bye, folks. Bye. Bye.